bring one to you. Proverbs chapter 16 is where we will be this morning. We'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read all the way through verse 9. We've been journeying through Proverbs since January, and though much of this central section is randomized, uh, sort of individual-wise sayings, there are a few moments where there are pockets of what seems to be some structured exhortations. A couple Proverbs strung together that carry a similar theme. And one of those moments is in Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. Verses 1 through 9 forms what's called an inclusio. You may have recognized that phrase from our time in Mark, where the author uses what's called this literary sandwich to make a theological point. A literary sandwich is when there is, at one beginning, at the beginning of this paragraph or section, there is a word or a phrase that then matches the last word or phrase of the section. So you have sandwich pieces that help interpret everything that happens in the middle. So this happens with verses 1 and 9. So look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 says, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. Verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his step. And everything in the middle of those two verses interprets and elaborates on this theme. The theme is the relationship between God's plans and our plans. And it is this intersection of life uh, that we turn to this morning, the intersection between our responsibility in the world to make plans and then God's sovereignty over everything in the world to accomplish His plan. To walk wisely in God's world, which is what Proverbs is written to help us do, we must both take responsibility for our own actions and trust God's sovereign actions as the most ultimate action. So that's what we're hoping to see today. So I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 9. We're going to pause and pray uh, for God to help guide our time. So verse 1, verse 1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The heart of a man plans his way but the Lord establishes his step. 
All right, let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would um, bring this text to life in my feeble attempt at a sermon. I pray that you would use uh, my efforts and work and planning and thinking and, and you would take these small, very imperfect efforts and you would accomplish your very grand and glorious, perfect will in the lives of people in this room, God. Lord, we pray not our will, but your will be done in this room as we approach your inspired words, and we hope and we pray that it, it illuminates a little bit more of your character and a little bit more of what it looks like to follow you for our most ultimate good, for your most ultimate glory. We pray, Lord, all these things uh, by your grace and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read a few verses from within this passage, emphasizing first what verse 1 says belongs to man. Verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. Verse 3, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Verse 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his Step. The first thing I want you to notice about this text and about the Proverbs altogether is that the Proverbs do not discourage human planning or human work. Some of you are like, darn it. <laughs> the Proverbs do not discourage human effort. In fact, they assume that you have a responsibility in God's world to work according to the abilities that God has given you. They encourage your planning, your will, your diligence, your ambition. The Proverbs sing the praises of the hard-working farmer and the diligent planner. And so we're going we're gonna to see several truths. First, truths about our work, then truths about God's work. So the truth number one that we see in the Proverbs is this. Godly ambition is good. Godly ambition is good. And I use the word ambition. Ambition is that desire to accomplish something. It is the desire that to accomplish something that leads to good planning and hard work. From the beginning of creation, God made us to accomplish stuff. He gave commands to humans that they were responsible for heeding. Those commands required planning and effort and the rejection of passivity and the embrace of even creativity and ingenuity. I can't even say that word, just creativity. God commands Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply to subdue the earth, to keep the ground, to name the animals, to fill the earth, to the edges of the earth with image bearers that declare God reigns here. God did not, however, spell out every detail about how Adam and Eve should go about all of this. God commands Adam to give names to the animals, but didn't tell them what names to choose. Rather, he, he insists that Adam use the incredible thing God put in his head, a brain, to pick names. God commissions Adam and Eve to use intellect and skills and giftings that he'd given them to then accomplish plans that would glorify 
God. And God, throughout the Bible, consistently relates to humanity in this way, even after the fall of mankind. Even Jesus himself, he commissions his followers to actively pursue and participate in a mission that God has for them. Jesus commissions every disciple to make disciples, to go to the nations, to be a witness to the ends of the earth. God very much could have written in the sky the whole book of Romans for the whole world to read at once and then understand all things. He's got the power to do so, but he doesn't. There's something uniquely glorifying by the way God equips and empowers his creatures to participate in the plan that he's laid out for them. So we're called as his creatures to love him to share the gospel with unbelievers, to make disciples, to plant churches around the world, to pour out our lives as an offering. And we have these principles, these instructions to follow. But God has placed this responsibility upon us to make plans, to carry them out. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, he says, he's speaking about Christ, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. We know that's the goal, present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We are very much responsible for heeding God's direction with the gifts and opportunities God has given. We're very much responsible for planning our lives unto the glory of God from the smallest of details to the largest of life decisions. We take all the wisdom he gives us and we utilize it to decide where to live, what job we should work, whom we should marry, how we should serve the church with our lives and our planning, our ambition is necessary, a necessary part of God's plan. To reject it is to fall into a a sinful passivity. To ignore it is to embrace the kind of laziness that Proverbs warns about over and over again. This, This is just what it means to be a faithful Christian person. All of our affections for God, all of our love for God bubbles up into this desire to make real plans to act on those affections. Desire to please God makes us want to make disciples. Desire to please God makes us ambitious for a better prayer life, for holiness and purity. It erupts into actual plans that can be seen. This is why Jesus says you will know them by their fruit because what inside sort of comes out into their actual life decisions. We make plans and we pursue them with an acknowledgement, however, that the final word is not ours. So the Proverbs do not discourage man's planning. Bruce Walt says this, one commentator, he says, human planning is necessary, but it's limited, limited by providence. To humans belong, that phrase gives the earthling the first word, but from I am, the great I am, the Lord, gives God the last word. Though our planning is necessary and we're certainly responsible for what God's given us, there's a certain level of self-assessment 
that we're constantly subjecting ourselves to. Verse 2 warns us of something. Verse 2 warns us of something. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. So truth number one, godly ambition is good. Like God wants you to be ambitious. He wants you to go after things, big, grand, glorious things to the praise of King Jesus. But truth number two, not all ambition is godly. Not all ambition that claims to be godly is godly. A repeated theme of Proverbs is that the truly wise person regularly acknowledges that their perspective is limited. The truly wise person does not rely on their wisdom. They know that they are fallible. The wise person is aware that their motives are never perfectly pure. Wise people are self-aware. Foolish people cannot even recognize that they're not self-aware. They think their ways are righteous. They think their thoughts are wise. They think their thoughts are pure. They actually get frustrated if anyone challenges them otherwise. And the fool often thinks not only that they are wise, but that their ways are straight from God. And they hold to that to such a degree that no one can challenge them on it. The Proverbs warn us of this pitfall over and over and over again. Just hear the onslaught of passages here, uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. 12, verse 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Chapter 16, 25. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. You get it so wrong, <laughs> That you think what you're doing leads to life and it leads to death. Verse, chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. 26, 12. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The fool is wise in his own eyes, even if seven men come to him and say, you're going down the wrong path, he says, they must be the ones who have it wrong. You see, we, we are certainly responsible for carrying out our plans for the glory of God, but we make plans acknowledging that our plans aren't perfect, that our perspective is limited, that, that we cannot see the end from the beginning. We cannot see all the facts. We cannot even see the hidden motivations of our own heart. God knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. Our hearts tend to deceive ourselves into thinking that we're more righteous than we really are. There are two building projects articulated in the book of Genesis. First 11 chapters includes two, right? Chapter 6 through 7, God commissions Noah to build an ark. I mean, it's a massive endeavor. Some of you are going to go uh, up north to see the replica of how big the ark could have been. Noah is just a dude, doesn't have ark building degree. God shows up and commands him to build this great big monstrosity. In verse uh, 5 of Genesis 7, it says, Noah did all that the Lord had 
commanded him. I cannot imagine the kind of planning, ambition, discipline, diligence it took to accomplish what Noah accomplished with hand tools and a handful of helpers. God was glorified through Noah's planning to accomplish God's plan. Now that's chapter 6 and 7. Chapter 11 comes in and there's another building project started. Genesis chapter 11 verse 3, the people get together and they say to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I cannot imagine the planning and ambition and diligence and hard work that went into the Tower of Babel. But none of it was godly. You see, ambition in and of itself is not godly. This was a godless ambition for self-glory rather than a godly ambition for God's glory. And the reality is, is that all of us in the room are building something. The question is, for whose glory are we building it? With differing degrees of ambition, everyone in the room plans and works and stewards resources. And we hope to bring order out of the chaos in the world. But let me warn you to have a kind of caution, a kind of self-assessing, a kind of willingness to, to have your plans blown up by the true king of the universe. You see, chapter 16, verse 2 says this, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. You see, God sees more than just our actions. He measures our motives. We don't, we don't just take our plans to the Lord and say, do what you will. We actually take our very heart to the Lord and we ask Him to, to test it and to search it and to reveal it to us. We pray with the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way of everlasting. That's how you proceed to plan great big things for the glory of God. You say, God, please search the inner places of my heart that I can't even see myself. You see, there's a recognition that we make plans as God's servant. We don't make them as if we are God. And this leads us to truth number three. Godly ambition humbly submits to God. Look at verse three. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now that word commit in verse 3 means to roll something away from yourself and to someone else. We therefore, we work and we plan and we hope, but we roll it all onto the lap of God, entrusting the authority of God to do whatever He pleases with that. We do so with a genuine faith that God's will is actually better than our own. And His perspective is actually bigger than our own. His way is actually better than our own. 
We commit it all to the Lord. But how crazy is it? And I don't know, maybe this is just me. How crazy is it that we often get mad at God for not letting us ser- serve God the way we want to serve God? <laughs> it's like, God, I'm trying to do this for you. <laughs> he's God. And maybe he's, he's not allowing you to serve in that way to remind you that you're not. That fact alone should work in us a kind of humility when we are seeking to carry out the mission of God. Look at verse 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Strong language, right? Not murderer, not abuser, arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. There's something about pride that cannot dwell in the presence of God. Like there's no room in the throne room of God for a prideful person. You just you're just not going to stand before the king of the universe and brag about something. <laughs> You will will immediately recognize that your attempts to prove your self-worth are very small in the face of an eternal God. It's why Proverbs makes humility one of the absolute keys to wisdom. I mean, chapter 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Chapter 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, the haughty spirit before a fall. Chapter 18, 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. Christians, we, we, we should be eager and zealous and passionate and hardworking, yet humble and restful and unfazed when our plans don't come to fruition. Because from the beginning, they were the Lord's to establish Anyways, right, we just studied in James chapter 4 in our small groups. If you've been a part of small groups, you heard James 4 verse 13 discussed. Today, or, uh, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such town and spend the air there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life for your mist that appear, appears for a little time then vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that as it is you boast in your arrogance. That, that comes straight from Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. You know, it, it appears in the Bible <clears throat> that God is more concerned with you being the kind of person who will trust Him and praise Him when your plans don't happen. He seems to be more concerned With that, then he is whether your plans happen the way you want them to happen. God may actually use the failure of your plans to accomplish what are really his plans for you, your most ultimate good, truest joy, and eternal glory. I was reading this week a little bit about uh, George Mueller, who's famous for modeling this type of disposition. George Mueller, if you don't know, is in... Uh, Bristol, England, he pastored the same church for 66 years. 
When he was 28 years old, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad, a, a missions agency that had five branches, schools for children and adults to teach Bible literacy, Bible distribution that gave away tens of thousands of Bibles in a day you couldn't buy one on Amazon, book and tract distribution for his country, missionary support for over 100 missionaries, orphan care. Over his lifetime, he cared for over 10,000 orphans. From the age 70 to 87, he began to be very involved in global mission work, traveling to 42 countries, preaching an average of one sermon a day in the late 1800s, when travel was neither quick nor comfortable. From age 87 to 92, he settled back into the church he'd been pastoring his whole life to preach weekly till the day he died. Dude worked. Dude made some plans. His life was extraordinary. But, but what people remember most about him was the way he humbly submitted every ounce of his ambition to the sovereign God of the universe. He is famous for never taking out a loan to accomplish any of this, for never asking anyone directly for any money. He prayed and was determined to only do as much as God provided for him to do. Listen as he writes, he writes this, I am not only content simply to be a hammer, an axe or a saw in God's hands, but I shall count it an honor to be taken up and used by him in any way. And if sinners are converted through my instrumentality from my inmost soul, I will give him all the glory. He's famous for saying this often, work with all your might, but, not, but trust not in the least in your work. Euler was driven by a vision of God, a, a theology of God that undergirds everything that this proverb has to say. So look back at the proverb, Proverbs chapter 16, verse 1. We've sort of thought about man's side of this. Now let's think about God's side of this. Verse 1, the plans of heart belong to man. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. The Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. By who? The Lord. What you, what you find in the Proverbs, there's an ultimate mover and shaker here. There's actually someone who's far more ambitious than any of us. All right. Truth number four. God is ambitious. Let's stop looking at us for a second. Let's look at the Lord. God is ambitious. Now, if the word ambition means desire to fulfill a particular purpose or achieve a particular goal, then ambitious is a very good descriptor of our God. God is not lackadaisically floating through ethereal space, finding entertainment in the random stuff that he made. He's not just sort of like bored, floating around with the babies on angels, right? He's doing stuff on purpose, when God created the world for an end toward which he's moving history. Verse 4 affirms this in a profound way. Verse 4 says this, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Not only does God create everything for a purpose, a particular purpose, 
even the wicked people in the world find themselves, perhaps even unintentionally, fulfilling the most ultimate purposes of God. This is what theologians call the doctrine of providence. So when you, when you hear someone say uh, sovereignty, they mean God is control, in control of everything, right? He, there's nothing that he doesn't touch, control. Every molecule is his to maneuver however he desires. Providence adds a nuance. Providence is a directional control. God controls everything for a purpose, that he plans to accomplish in the end. He's aiming everything at something. God is ambitious, but he's ambitious in a different way than we are. You see, we're ambitious in a kind of hopeful way. I mean, we're, we're working toward a goal that may or may not come to pass, no matter how hard we work. God is ambitious in a certain kind of way because there's never a purpose or pursuit that he's incapable of bringing to completion. Do you, do you believe that God doesn't make accidents? Like, he never says whoops, or uh-oh, or I didn't see that coming, right? Proverbs 21, verse 30 says this, No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans of the mind of man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. As you see, the theology undergirding all of the Proverbs is a God who controls even the smallest of details. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. No adversary no sickness, no disease, no disaster, no rebel, no funeral can do anything but accomplish the ordained ambitions of the God of the universe. How humbling, how humbling is it that our ambition is so different than God's? But what, what are those ambitions of God? What's the mission and purpose of God toward which he's, he's moving all of history? What, what are his plans? If I'm supposed to try to commit my plans to his plans, what are his plans? Well, we catch perspective of those purposes even here in the Proverbs. Look at uh, verse 5 again. You know, God is active. Even in verse 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Truth number five, we've got seven, by the way, perfect number. You need to, if you're like, oh, we've already passed four. We've got seven, perfect number. Maybe not perfect number. Truth number five, God plans to be glorified for his justice. Whether, whether we plan to rebel against God in our arrogance with our lives, or we submit to God in humility, we will be accomplishing the purpose of God one way or another. He, he aims to get glory one way or another. Everyone who's arrogant in heart will be punished by God, and God will judge everyone who opposes him to the end. Even the prideful heart will bow before the righteous judge and right king over the universe who will not tolerate arrogance of mankind. Like Pharaoh in Exodus, hardening his heart against God in the book of Exodus, every hardened heart who wars against God's plan will only 
ever contribute to the fulfillment of God's plan. To display his glory over that kind of arrogance at the final judgment. You will never usurp the glory of God. You will only contribute to it in one way or another. The question is, will you contribute to the glory of God by receiving his justice? Or will you contribute to it by receiving joyfully a salvation that he's planned? Truth number six is this. God plans to be glorified for his salvation. Verse six then moves on. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. There's a steadfast love is a special word in Hebrew there, which points to God's covenantal love, committed love, a, a, a promise-making love, that He will not revoke. Faithfulness is a word that describes trustworthiness to those love promises. The, the God of the Bible has made promises throughout the Bible, and throughout the Bible, he promises love, not wrath, to whoever fears the Lord rightly. That is, to know God as he really is, and trust him as he really is. And that right fear of the Lord, it's always accompanied by an action, turning away from evil. That is, turning from the thing that God hates, turning to the God who loves you. And this proverb says that somehow, some way, God will cover up your offenses. But somehow, some way, by steadfast love and faithfulness to his promise, you'll be atoned for all your failures. The promise here in Proverbs can only be fulfilled by the promise fulfilled in the Gospels. That Jesus becomes for us steadfast love and faithfulness. His perfect life and death and resurrection atones for your sins. What's your role in all of this? Fear God. <laughs> Believe. And let that belief lead you to turn away from your sin and toward God. What is God ambitious for? You. <laughs> to know Him. To be forgiven of the ways you've rejected Him. What's He ambitious for? He's acquiring for Himself a people who will trust Him and turn from their sins and enjoy the salvation He offers forever and ever. God has an end game. And we see a picture of it in the book of Revelation. Everything in your life is working in this direction, toward this end credit scene. Revelation chapter, chapter 7, verse 9. John is seeing it, the future. And he says, I looked, behold, a great multitude no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's end game ambition is a multitude of people from every nation, tribe, language, together proclaiming with joy, salvation belongs to our God. What a wonderful thing for God to be ambitious for. My eternal joy, despite me not deserving any of it. His plan is to be glorified for his salvation. His plan is to be glorified for his justice over those who refuse that 
salvation. And then now, if that's God's plans, and we got plans to make, okay, now how do our plans jive with his plans? I mean, what are we supposed to be doing until the accomplishment of his plans? How do we align it all? And this is our last truth, truth number seven. Our plans are, are not unimportant. The truth number seven, God's plan, God plans to be glorified by working through us. I mean, one of the, at least one of the ways that God will be glorified for eternity, it will not only be in his display of justice, it will not only be in his display of salvation, it will also be a display of how he sovereignly used goobers like me and you. <laughs> I mean, we will be amazed that God included in his cosmic ambitions us. Not having to, not needing to, not lacking something that I had. God chooses to say, I'll, I'll include Brandon in this end game ambition of mine. He chooses to flex his sovereign power over every force of evil by using saved sinners like us and all of our weaknesses and all of our imperfections to do his will in the world. Notice how Proverbs 16 put before us this goal. Not to forsake planning altogether, but just to align our plans with his plans, right? Chapter 16, verse 1. The plans of, heart, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the Spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Our work and God's work in this cosmic dance where we take responsibility over what he's commanded us to and we submit our will to God's in every way. Verse 9 wraps it up. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his step. And if you follow the Apostle Paul throughout his writings, he is constantly amazed that he gets to participate in God's mission. He's just, he's, he's floored by it. He's humbled by it. I mean, we, we say, oh, Paul, the apostle and theologian and church planner who, who writes all these things, and the dude was just flabbergasted continuously that God would use him to do anything, and that motivated him to strive all the more. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, what's Apollos, what's Paul servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. And listen to how Paul is just amazing this. We are God's fellow workers. So in the sense, in one sentence, he's saying, we're nothing. And the next sentence, he's saying, but we're fellow workers with the God of creation. What a remarkable reality that God would save me and then use me for anything at all. We'll be praising the Lord for all the ways he did that for thousands and thousands of years. So this is how I want to conclude. I want to conclude with a few questions. Uh, first, the question to the unbeliever in the room. I assume there are unbelievers in the room, and let me just ask you a question. What is the purpose of your life? Every person feels in their soul 
that there has to be more to life than making money, having some fun, and then living as long as we can. Every person feels angst in the soul that there has to be more than this in this broken world. I mean, as early as the fourth century, Augustine is writing and reflecting, and he says, God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in him. Would you consider this morning that God, who is in charge of all the details of the universe, got you in this room on purpose this morning to be confronted with the purposelessness of your life unless you find your purpose in God? Now, to the Christian in the room, let me ask you a question. Are you spiritually ambitious? In other words, are you making plans and striving to be used by the Lord more in your life? Maybe your sin is the sin of a spiritual sluggard. Maybe your default is to simply coast through life as comfortable as you can, not doing the big sins, but never taking any risk, always protecting your me time, never making commitments that stretch you to disciple another person, to do the hard work it would take, the relational work it would take, to evangelize someone who's going to hell. If that's you, take some time this morning and repent. Look at your life and everything as God has given you and make a plan to risk it all for Christ. And to the person who has all the plans worked out in their calendar, <laughs> are you ambitious in a godly way? I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you're very ambitious, you make a lot of plans, you work hard, you see a lot of things happen, but your struggle is to commit those things to the Lord. Your struggle is to really let God weigh your spirit to see if your motives are pure. One way you can tell whether your ambitions are godly is to ask yourself, what if God did not accomplish this through me or for me? Would I still be content in him? Would I still rejoice in him? Will I still labor to be used in a different way? Have I truly committed my work, my life, my desires, my plans to the one and only Lord whose plans never fail? And so this will we'll close and we'll pray for a Proverbs 16 kind of perspective over our hearts and over this church. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we ask that you would humble us as a congregation, as a people, that you would humble me. I have all kinds of plans all kinds of visions of grandeur, things I just want to see and be a part of, um, things I just want to see you do that only you could do. Lord Father, I pray uh, that for myself and for all of us uh, that we would be ambitious in a godly way as a church, that we would proceed with humility and eagerness to be used by the God of the universe. We pray that you would um, dig up and cast away any sort of sluggardness that exists in this congregation. But Father, you would dig up and throw away any type of pride that exists in this congregation. Do this work now as we respond to you in prayer and uh, in worship through song, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in one voice.